Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is November the 1st. It's a Monday. Uh, A lot of exciting news in the headlines today, including the borders opening, which is fantastic. And before we get into it, we do have the briefing survey. So we'd love you to jump in and tell us what works for you or what we could improve on the briefing. We're 18 months into it now, and we can just change and adapt it to whatever works for you. So if you have a moment, we would really love you to go to our Instagram bio. You'll see a link to a survey and we'll just ask you some key questions about which bits work for you. Is it a daily habit or do you just choose on the topics that interest you? All of that kind of stuff. We'd love to hear from you. Um, In our briefing today, we're going to speak to an American from the New York Times who moved to Australia and was blown away by the way we take risks. There's more of a willingness to just throw kids in and say, have a crack at it. And and I think it reaches out to adults too. There's a willingness to just try new things. Whereas I think American culture has increasingly become a place, especially in the sort of educated classes where there's a desire for sheltering. So living in Australia completely changed his mind about risk, but then he was perplexed by the way we responded to COVID, which showed a more complex relationship with risk because we wanted to minimise it as much as possible. That is Damien Cave from the New York Times in our briefing. First, Katrina Blouse is here as we hit the headlines. Um, Let's do this, Katrina. Well, the French President Emmanuel Macron has made a very strong statement about the way Scott Morrison handled the submarine deal. Can you trust Scott Morrison again? We discussed. I'm, I, I do tr- respect. Can you trust him, though? I mean, we will we will see what he will deliver. I have a lot of respect for your country. I have a lot of respect and a lot of friendship for your people. I just say when you, when we have respect, you have to be two and you have to behave in line and consistently with this value. Do you think he lied to you? I don't think. I know. Oh. That was the French president being questioned by, yeah, from Bevan Shields from the nine newspapers. What would you make of that, Katrina? Oh, well, what I made of it was, geez, that's that's some strong words there. But also, what about the footage that emerged from Rome over the weekend where all the world leaders were meeting, where we saw Scott Morrison kind of without any friends, particularly during that uh, family photo that all the world leaders were having, to the point where the Prime Minister's office actually had to release one-on-one pics of Emmanuel Macron and, uh, and the PM shaking hands with um, Emmanuel Macron's hand on Scott Morrison's shoulder to kind of prove that there was no bad blood there. But I think from those statements overnight, you can see that definitely some love Mm. has been lost. And also at the G20 in Rome, the world leaders um, got together to pledge carbon neutrality by around mid-century. So it seems like there might have been a bit of tension behind the scenes there because that's a, a much softer pledge than pledging to do it by mid-century. So we're already seeing the sort of tussle on how much ambition will come out of the Glasgow summit, which starts this week. International travel starts again today. This is a big day. It means Australians are allowed to leave the country and returning citizens and their families will be allowed back into Sydney and Melbourne without quarantining, but only if they're vaccinated. Yeah, and from yesterday, New South Wales also reopened the border to vaccinated travellers from New Zealand. And in three weeks, we're going to open the border with Singapore and not just returning Australians. This will be for tourists, students and workers. Um, That agreement was finalised by Scott Morrison and the Singapore Prime Minister Lee Sen Long at Rome. And he also met with um, 
the president from Indonesia, Joko Widodo. So that means uh, travel to Bali could be on the horizon, Katrina. Yeah, so, so we're going to see what's going to happen in WA and also in Queensland. So Queensland has always said its uh, international travel won't resume until we hit 90% vaccinated. But given we're not even uh, at 80% vaccinated yet here in Queensland, uh, we've got something like 63% of people double dosed. It's unclear when that's going to happen. WA hasn't given a timeline yet. So at the moment, it's only people in New South Wales, Victoria, Victoria and the ACT who can dust off their passports <laughs> and uh, resume their lives again. I wonder if that'll help people in those other states speed up the vaccination rate. Gosh, you've got to hope so. I think people will be looking at Instagram and getting some serious FOMO. And the former New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian will be back in a quite a harsh spotlight today. This will be her second day of questioning in the Independent Commission Against Corruption. So Friday's evidence included several phone recordings and text messages revealing more about the nature of her relationship with disgraced former MP Daryl Maguire. We also learned how hard he lobbied her privately for funding. Yeah, but despite that, she wouldn't admit any wrongdoing. We didn't share finances. We didn't live together. I was not confident in his level of commitment, did not regard him as a member of my family um, and I did not regard there to be any impact on um, my public responsibility and I did not think the relationship had a sufficient status. Despite the fact that when for five years that he had a key to her house, that they went on holidays together, that they loved Mm -hmm. each other, talked about getting married and having children and we all heard what he said to her on the phone and how many concessions she made uh, about funding in his electorate. The Corruption Watchdog is investigating whether she breached public trust in failing to uh, report her relationship with Maguire. So it was quite hard to watch because so much of that evidence was put in front of her, but she wouldn't admit any wrongdoing, Katrina, and she'll be back in the stand again today for the last day of what's been uh, a gruelling but very revealing two weeks of hearings. All right, so what do you think of this? You can test yourself for COVID. You'll be able to buy those rapid antigen tests from this morning at certain supermarkets. So I'm delighted uh, that the TGA has now recommended that home testing will be available from the 1st of November. That was Health Minister Greg Hunt speaking there. The tests will be sold in all states except for South Australia and WA and they return a result in 20 to 30 minutes They'll be sold in pharmacies, major supermarkets and other retailers in store and online. So they're not super cheap. Woolies has priced a pack of two sets at 30 bucks and a pack of five at $50. Coles is expected to sell them for a similar price. Um, there are limitations though, Tom, and they're not mm. super accurate. They're kind of like, you know, when you take, well, I don't know whether you know about <laughs> this, Tom, but when you take a home pregnancy test, how it gives you an indication that you can have a false positive and also a false negative. All right, Katrina, we'll chat to you tomorrow. Um, Jan Fran's about to join us as we talk to Damien Cave about whether Australians are big risk takers or not. In 2017, an American journo called Damien Cave moved to Australia to set up the Australian Bureau of the New York Times. Now he worked in Baghdad, Mexico, Miami, New York and Jan Fran, it seems like his latest posting has really captured a special place in his heart. It absolutely has. Um, So much so that he's written a book about it called Into the Rip, 
how the Australian way of risk made my family stronger, happier and less American. He joins us now. Damien, thanks for joining us. Judging by your book, our way of life here in Australia, our approach to risk, the water, community has really made you think. You've gone hundreds of years back into philosophy and early science, deep inside your own mind and your family life. Did you see any of this coming when you first moved here in 2017? No, I didn't really. I mean, I sort of thought Australia would be a relatively, you know, easy assignment where I could repeat the pattern I had in other countries of just kind of being, you know, a neutral observer, expat reporter. Um, But Australia really wouldn't let me do that. It kind of forced (laughs) me to participate (laughs) in a way that I hadn't before. Yeah, well, part of that was that the local school, right, where basically the other parents peer pressured you to put your kids into nippers, even though they'd basically never swum in in those kind of um, rough seas before. No, that's right. I mean, I don't think my kids had ever really been in the ocean over their heads. And, and, you know, when all my neighbors kept telling me to sign them up for nippers, I just figured it was a nice, you know, bunch of beach games for kids. And <laughs> no one bothered to tell me that it was junior lifesaving in a really dangerous beach outside of Sydney. So it was it was really quite a shocking transformation. So what did you learn about risk? from enrolling your kids into nippers? Well, there are a lot of things. I mean, well, the first thing is that we don't need to be as afraid as we think we do in terms of our children. They're often far more capable than we think they are. Uh, you know, another thing that I learned, I think, is sort of the value of positive peer pressure. We tend to think of pressure as a bad thing, but sometimes pressure can encourage people to go beyond their comfort zone and to do more than they think they're capable of. And that includes both kids and adults. And this was particular to nippers because you've been all around the world, Damien. You've lived in so many different countries. You've reported in war zones. You've been in very risky situations. What do you think was so particular about this program that kind of made you change the way you looked at risk? Well, I think the first thing that I noticed about risk was I was afraid, you know, seeing my kids jump in the water. And it really made me realize that our approach to risk is not something that's built into us. It's not like you're a risk taker or you're not. I thought I had been a risk taker, but seeing the way that nippers in this program worked made me realize that actually this is something that can be learned through practice. And, you know, if you have a program like nippers, that's what it's based on. It's building kids and adults towards this thing called proficiency, which Australians don't, you know, think of as all that profound. But I really started to see is really intense. What it kind of means is not perfection or victory or individualism. It means skilled in doing. And this idea of sort of building towards being skilled in doing with the community and even if you're afraid doing it anyway. All of those things, I think, turn into something that is actually more profound than than you might think, just throwing kids in the water. You threw your son literally in the water, in the deep end at Bronte Pool, (laughs) in a moment of um, parental frustration. But what were the most scary or or fearful moments for you in, in these new places, environments and settings you were being confronted with? Well, you know, there were several times where my kids went further out than I thought I was comfortable with and to a point where I could barely see them, you know, and they're still pretty little. I mean, they're barely learning how to tie their shoes. And and yet the, you know, the age managers and the group that worked with them was very confident in their abilities. And they all turned out to be right. But between going out and then coming back in with these giant waves, it would smash them into the beach. You know, it was really there were some pretty confronting moments for me as a parent. And then individually, after they sort of persuaded me to try and get my bronze and try to join this crazy thing, you know, I had a few scary moments myself where I was in a rip and just not sure I could get out of it, Um, you know, where I was just trying to learn how to be a better swimmer and feeling like a total failure and wanting to quit. (laughs) So, Hmm. you know, I had some personal struggles along the way where I had to sort of go from kind of really hating swimming to now actually growing to really love it. 
Jamie, let's expand this out a little bit because while Nippers is central to your book, it is sort of about Australia and the Australian attitudes and, and how that kind of relates to you as, as an American. You write um, in the book that Australians are in the odd position of getting risk mostly right most of the time without really noticing. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, I think risk is something that no individual and no individual society ever gets perfectly right. Humans are just not very good at assessing risk. And so it's easy to look at some of the things in Australian life where risk doesn't seem to be very well managed, where maybe they're too cautious in terms of cultural inclusion. Maybe it's too cautious in terms of technology and and innovation. But when you look at the sort of broader picture, what you see are things like you know, road fatalities being a fraction of what they are in the United States. I hate the strict road rules here too, but you know what? They work. You know, you've got a public health care system that that works and has really come together during the pandemic to to bring people together. And even if the political class was not perfect, the society itself did what needed to be done to keep everyone safe. And you see that with the vaccination rates now. So that's another example. And then it just extends really to like small town community life. You know, I mean, nature intrudes here and it's not just by the ocean. You know, I have friends who tell me, oh yeah, whenever I would go for a bushwalk, my parents would always tell me, you know, stomp on the ground to make sure the snakes go away or check behind the bin to make sure there's no spiders there. And so Australian life, whether you want it to or not, forces you to deal with risk in nature at an early age. And to some degree, if you apply that more broadly, I think it sort of seeps into the culture. And and, and that's sort of what I mean. It's again, It's not perfect, but Mm. there are lots of things here that I think are really beneficial. And then I sometimes wish Australians would actually look at more deeply and try to apply, you know, like what what would Australian life look like if the sort of philosophy of nippers was applied to Canberra or applied to, you know, the business community? And it's, it's an interesting question. But is this really an Australian thing, Damien? Because I imagine kids in Colorado, you know, for example, in in small towns in the in the mountains, you know, for example, would grow up taking a lot of risk because nature intrudes into their lives in in beautiful and exciting and and dangerous ways too. Well, there's some truth to that. I mean, it's not it's not unique to Australia, but you know, I don't know of anyone in Colorado who has, you know, bush camps as part of their high school career. I think that there's just a lot more of it here than people recognize. And I also think, I mean, you have to take into account some of the statistics, right, that show the ocean in particular is much more present here. You know, mm. not everyone lives near the beach, but you know, 85% of the of Australian population lives within 50 kilometers of the ocean. That's far more than almost any other society of this size in the world. And so, you know, that relationship to the water and to nature, I, I do think is just deeper here. Our relationship with risk, though, is 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 a bit of a complicated one. So during the course of writing this book, you lived through the pandemic, obviously our approach to the pandemic. And I guess in the surf, a lot of us might be, you know, comfortable being out there in the wild and comfortable with that risk. Did did our low risk tolerance for dealing with COVID surprise you? Yes and no. One way to look at the way Australia responded to the pandemic is through the lens of collectivism and communal sacrifice. You know, as I wrote in the New York Times repeatedly, this was a country that decided to make, you know, small sacrifices for bigger collective gains. And so that's one way to look at it. I do think there was a move sort of away from risk, especially among the political class that just was locking down borders and keeping people out. And that did surprise me. But what that tells you, though, is, you know, circling back to sort of the premise of the book is that risk is something you have to learn and you have to practice. And if you don't keep applying it and keep embracing risk in your life, 
you're going to retreat to safety. You know, humans at some point want the guarantee of safety, even when it's not what's good for us. Well, on an individual level and in a, in a physical sense, we seem to like risk, but in a collective space, we seem to have a, a lower risk appetite, it seems, and an ability to um, adhere to the rules. And it seems like that has um, brought us under fire a bit from the right in America. Um, you had Ted Cruz um, singling us out recently, that bizarre protest in New York sort of protesting on our behalf for our freedoms. And, and this seems to have been exacerbated by, I guess, the second half of our handling of the pandemic, but also going back to our tight gun laws. So w- what do you think? Are these just lunatics on the American fringe or are Americans more generally sort of perplexed by our complex risk appetite? I think Americans, you know, as is often the case, aren't very good at dealing with the nuances of other countries. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think this is a particular corner of American right wing. It's basically using Australia to make an argument that it wants to make about its own you know, sense of values. It's, it's totally not really about Australia. It's really about these folks speaking to their own little tribe. And Australia is just an example they can cite, perhaps to not talk about the number of deaths in the United States that came from their approach to COVID, you know? So I, I think that's a distraction. I don't think that's really a reflection of how Americans really okay. view or, or think of Australia. I mean, I think most Americans do know that there are just natural risks in Australia that, and that's part of the reason why they want to come and enjoy the place. And I do think they sometimes oversimplify the similarities, you know, as I did when I got here. I mean, mm. you sort of think, oh, well, Australia speaks the same language. You know, it's another country that used to be closer tied to Britain, it must be similar. And the reality is that they're very, very different places. And and I think, you know, especially when it comes to the approach to community and especially when it comes to the approach to parenting, you know, I think there's more of a willingness to just throw kids in and say, have a crack at it. And, and I think it reaches out to adults too. There's a willingness to just try new things. Whereas I think American culture has increasingly become a place, especially in the sort of educated classes where there's a desire for sheltering and you only do things if you know you're going to succeed and win absolutely. And that's sort of the extremism of American life that I think Australia needs to protect itself against. Damien, your, your book is, um, I mean, it's there in the title, right? The Australian Way of Life, How It Made My Family Stronger, Happier and Less American. In what ways are you less American now? Lots of different ways. You know, I think American individualism is a value that has become so sacred um, in the United States that there's been a loss of a willingness to just join with others, especially others who you may not agree with. And, you know, I find myself now accepting the positive peer pressure of social events, of, you know, sort of life-saving, of just my community and the things that it expects from me. And and also even doing the same to others. Like now I'm the one actually starting to pressure people to think less of themselves as individuals and more as part of a group. And so that's a big transformation for me. And the second thing I do think is that I, I have become less cautious about trying new things and trying to push beyond the, my comfort zone. You know, and I think for me and my kids and my wife, all of us are constantly thinking about, well, we're going to choose the bigger adventure. We're going to try something different. That's something I think I try to apply more than I used to. So... You're going to stay here forever? You know, I'm trying to. You know, I'm on the path to citizenship. <laughs> oh, and, wow. Um, you know, so we're, we don't have any plans to go. I mean, you know, I do think this even relates at a deeper level to just the way democracies work too, you know. And I, and I unfortunately for, for the United States, I, I think that there are lots of other countries, Australia included, that have healthier democracies, which is not to say they're not threatened, which is not to say they can't improve. But, you know, the values of this place, you know, of trying new things, of working with others, 
I think are more important values than some of the values that I find in the United States. And so, yeah, I'm planning to stay here. That was Damien Cave, his book, Into the Rip, How the Australian Way of Risk Made My Family Stronger, Happier and Less American is out now. Quite an endorsement for the Aussie way of life, Jan. I think so. And, you know, sometimes we can tend to hate outsiders telling us what Australia is like and how we're supposed to be living. But sometimes it's actually nice, I think, to have that perspective because we are so used to living the way we live. It almost feels like second nature. We don't analyse it too much. But, mm. you know, having outsider eyes every every now and again, I think, gives us a perspective that we don't have. It's nice hearing it. Yeah, well, I guess some of these things are just so obvious that we have such a great connection to the outdoors that, you know, obviously people in regional areas do, but even in our cities, the beach gives us this access to something so wild and beautiful and that in this kind of modern life where we can control so many things and so many risks, that connection to the wilderness still gives us this sense of danger and and that can help build resilience. God, I've got to get out more. (laughs) Hey, it's the lockdown, it's not you. Tomorrow on The Briefing, how do you know if you're lonely? A very deep and hopefully very helpful conversation. Listener.